Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. I'm looking for companies that really are early in their journey. They've got incredible potential. Typically, they all have incredible founder teams, a culture of innovation, and you know they've really got something to the story. But also, these days, I feel that they're at a reasonable valuation. My thesis for each of those kind of looks beyond the hype. And sees a day where all of those companies potentially are generating, providing services or products that I feel the world will need more of in the future. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How can you approach the market today? What place does cash have in your portfolio? And what can better experience teach us? I'm joined today by Luke Hallard from Seven Investing. Hello, Luke. Hi, Phil. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Now, Seven Investing is an American company and you're an Englishman. Just tell us a little bit about um, your role in Seven Investing and what you're providing. Yeah, I'm a lead advisor for the company. We have um, seven lead advisors. We've all got our own domains of interest. I guess I class, I think of myself as the sort of fintech AI innovation guy. So I'm always looking for fun companies for my own recommendations and for my own portfolio that I feel are providing products or services that the world's going to need more of in the future. That's really what drives my own kind of hobbies and interests but also drives uh, my stock recommendations for Seven Investing. Well, it's great to hear something. I mean, we're here in Australia, but it's also good to hear what's going on in world markets as well, because many, many people becoming more interested in investing internationally as well. Luke, you recently posted a Twitter thread reviewing your portfolio where you reflected on the performance and honestly appraised the role of each company in generating returns. His portfolio review thread is now closing in on half a million views, and that's where you reviewed what was about 20 companies, Luke, from memory? Yeah, did a bit of a, a transparent look back at the last 19 mm-hmm. years of investing and picked yeah. out 20 sort of interesting stories I tried to learn from as I was doing that review myself. And so after that, you received questions and commenters, and you've had some valuable questions, which generated another thread, which we're going to go through today, uh, because I believe it has valuable lessons for all investors, no matter your knowledge level. So the first uh, question that you dealt with was, how do you structure your portfolio? So, and I've, I've sort of backed into this over the course of many years and trying different things out. And this is what's worked for me. I actually think about the stocks in my portfolio as being in a number of different categories. And those categories actually drive in percentage terms, how much I invest into each one, how I think about them as a, as a basket. So, you know, if you think, Phil, about your own highest conviction stocks, you know, maybe there's three or four or five that, you know, these are these define my portfolio. And they're almost certainly going to be the largest allocations in your portfolio. But for me, I, I term these my core investments. And 
these are companies that have just executed almost flawlessly over the period I've owned them, extremely high conviction for me. And that, that makes up the backbone of my portfolio. So those core stocks, they're about a 6% allocation each. I've got about six or seven of them. So in total, they add up to about 40% of the portfolio. That really is the engine room. It kind of drives on my returns. But if I look at the other end of my portfolio, I've got mm. a, a bunch of investments I class as venture stocks, venture investments. And those are tiny allocations, kind of up up to about 1%, typically about half a percent each. And if I'm really honest, I expect the majority of those to kind of go nowhere, probably to fail. But I think one or two of them are going to do well, hopefully deliver a significant return, you know, at least a 10x, maybe even a hundred times return. And if just one of those can deliver that, well, that's going to outweigh all of the other failed investments in that venture category. So I've got a few other categories, but that's kind of, that's the kind of two ends, the, the barbell, if you like, of my portfolio. Can we just dwell on portfolio allocation for a moment? You mentioned that these core holdings are about 6% each, making up 40%. Is there any reason why you came to that kind of weighting? Uh, it just evo- it's just as evolved. <laughs> no, no, no it, it's evolved a little bit, but there is some logic as well. So, mm. and I think this is a good, this is a good principle for all investors. You've, all, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the term dollar cost average, DCA. You know, it can, you can put yourself in a difficult situation. I've actually made this mistake myself with a company called C Limited. If you buy too big a position all in one go, you're really exposing yourself to volatility and for good or for bad. And in my case with C Limited, that really, really hurt my portfolio because I bought a, a big allocation in one piece. So what I prefer to do, and I broke my rule with C, is I prefer to buy, I say in thirds, sometimes even though more than three pieces. So typically if I'm coming to take an initial position in a company, I've done some preliminary due diligence in, I think I've got a good handle on, maybe I've read the 10K, I've read the the most recent 10Q, I might have listened to a podcast with the founder. I feel like I understand the company and I want to add it to my portfolio at a potentially a high conviction. Well, I'll typically not take more than a 2% stake initially. And then so that's that's two percent. That's two percent of your overall portfolio. That's the case. Exactly. So that number changes mm. over time. You know, typically it's kind of generally going up as the portfolio grows. Those two percents become bigger. But that'll be my kind of day one allocation for a high conviction stock. That's and then once I've got that two percent, what I'll try to do is try and resist the urge of fiddling with it, messing around, I'll just try and give the company a couple of quarters to execute. And if they if they execute in line with my investment thesis, I've always got a reason, certainly for these high conviction stocks, I, I understand why I own them. And if I see that story playing out, then uh, maybe after six months or a year, I'll add. And I'll typically, if the stock hasn't grown by itself, I'll add new money and I'll take it up to a 4% allocation. And then if I'm really comfortable with the stock, you know, if I'm seeing real green shoots for the future, in rare cases, one of those companies becomes a core allocation for me and I'll perhaps add new money or I'll let it grow organically, but I'll bring it up to a 6% allocation. So kind of 
2% times three. That's how I got to my 6%. And I do have a bit of a rule, which I don't think I've broken, which is I won't add new money to any position beyond 6%. So I've certainly got some allocations that are way higher than that, even today, but they've got there by growing themselves as opposed to me sticking a lot of money in and uh, kind of artificially buying myself to that position. Essentially, let your winners run and let the, the best stocks in your portfolio show themselves to you, reveal themselves to you. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, that idea of letting your winners run? Because there's always that temptation when that's 10% up, oh, if I sell now, I've made 10% or 20% up. Or I mean, I've recently had this um, uh, situation myself where I've had a, a gold miner run up and I think it got up to about 60%. Now it's back at about 40% up. And I'm just, re- for the first time in my life, resisting the temptation to sell it. And um, I think the quote that I've heard is, why would you put Michael Jordan on the bench? <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that uh, metaphor. But yeah, I, I tend to think in terms of water the flowers and uh, trim the weeds. But our instinct as an investor is sometimes to do the opposite, cut back our winners because we want to take some money off the table, you know, protect our gains and add to our losers because, oh, they've got to turn around. You know, they've, they're so cheap. How can they possibly get cheaper? But time and again, the market teaches us that those are the wrong things to do. So does the portfolio weighting shift around? Like if one particular company becomes a lot bigger, they're obviously going to, you know, if you do have a winner, it's going to suddenly become 8%, 10%. What do you do in that um, situation? always my first instinct is to do nothing, let it run. And it's only really if the thesis has changed. I'll give, I'll give, I'll give actually, there's a caveat to that. So I won't trim if the thesis is intact because the company is executing, it looks great. But there are, there are perhaps two situations where I will trim. And I'll, I'll give two examples of this actually from my Twitter thread. So um, one is a company, Netflix, which I owned through this sort of heady days where it actually delivered over a 200 times return for me, 210 times return. And you can't get that kind of return unless you let the story play out. And another example there was Shopify as well. In more recent years, the, the stock's taken a bit of a hit in the last couple of years, but it really went on an incredible run um, through the late 2010s. And, and I was there at the time as a having it as actually the largest position in my portfolio. The rule I've come to for myself is driven by my own, uh, really, uh, frankly, ability to sleep well at night. If a stock gets to about a 20% allocation in my portfolio, so maybe I you know, bought it up to 6% and perhaps it more than tripled, so you know, versus the growth of the overall portfolio. So now it's getting on to about 20%. At that point, I'm really challenging myself to say, well, really, I should be trimming this back because I'm too overexposed. And I've done that a number of times. Essentially, it's good portfolio management discipline. But then there's also, I think I never used to use valuation um, strongly enough in my process. If I'm really honest, for decades, I was a story investor, you know, strategic investor, looking at the thesis, looking at how the company was executing against it. But actually, 2022 taught me some really hard lessons and valuation is important, is critical. So a company that I've trimmed in my own portfolio 
about five or six months ago, well, not that long ago, perhaps about April, but I was a little bit early in trimming, was NVIDIA. So I came somewhat late to the party with NVIDIA. I bought it twice in my own portfolio, I think June and then maybe July or August last year. But it really went on a tremendous run. And I got in before that AI story really started to be seen in the valuation. And now every company is yabbering about AI in their earnings calls. And they all want NVIDIA's hardware and software to power it. So that's really driven the valuation to in my mind, almost unsustainable levels. So that's my new process of the last year or so is actually to use valuation as well as part of my process and trim back as a result of that, trim back my NVIDIA allocation. But with a view, I've still got NVIDIA in my portfolio. It's now down to about a 2% allocation again, but I've trimmed it back with a view to hopefully adding if the valuation improves. Okay, so I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the idea of valuation. What are the metrics that you use to ascertain? I'm assuming that you're saying that once a company like NVIDIA gets becomes the subject of so much height that its value is not there anymore. Is that kind of what it, what you're looking at? I think if the market is, in that case, the market is valuing it too highly. There's so much excitement and FOMO, frankly, built into the share price. It's, it feels like it's at an, at an unsustainable level. Actually, I haven't looked at the numbers in the last month, but at the point where I was trimming it for valuation purposes in my own portfolio, I was really looking at the company on a price to free cash flow basis. And it's one of my favorite valuation metrics right now, particularly because um, you know, potentially the world is going into a recession. As consumers, you know, potentially we have less discretionary money to spend on fun stuff, but that happens to companies as well. And they'll have the customers of NVIDIA will have less discretionary money because, you know, their customers can't spend as much cash with them. So you have this big sort of cascade effect and all the suppliers up the supply chain uh, will start to struggle. So we will, in some cases, we'll see that benefiting companies, companies like, for example, CrowdStrike, where they are the, you know, unarguable leader in their field. They're very well capitalized and a tough macro environment is actually probably going to be a tailwind for them. It's going to help them because it's going to really hurt their competition and they've got enough money in the back pocket. They've got plenty of cash on the balance sheet and they're profitable, you know, generating money every quarter, free cash flow, which is essentially by definition, it's the money left over after they've paid all their operational expenses, where the leadership can, team can decide how they're going to spend that money, either invest it back in themselves, perhaps make it pay a dividend or, you know, but do a share buyback, but they can do some got some choices they can make there. So I think free price to free cash flow is a really helpful metric right now because it tells us companies that are profitable, uh, it tells us kind of how sustainable their business model is if the world gets tough. And when I looked at NVIDIA on a price to free cash flow basis, back when I bought it and really back for over, over a decade or two, the company's never really traded much higher than 50 times free cash flow. And about two months ago, three months ago, it was trading at 180 times free cash flow. So that just felt unsustainable to me, even if 
um, all of the sort of hopes and aspirations of AI investors play out. It's going to take a long time uh, for an investor to see a return at such a high multiple. So that that was my thinking for that particular company. You can't always use that metric. If you look at a very young company, it may not be generating real earnings. It might not be generating free cash flow. So you might have to look at it on a price to sales basis, look at the multiple of the revenue it generates because it hasn't got to profitability. So there's there's some kind of different, it's a bit of an art really, but there's different metrics should apply depending on the nature of the company. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you confused about how to invest? LifeSherpa can ease the burden of having to decide for yourself. Head to LifeSherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. I know you like your gardening analogies, and you mentioned green shoots previously, that um, when you're looking at a company where you're investing 2% of your portfolio into, you're looking for green shoots before you commit any more money to it. What do some of those green shoots look like? Uh, um, Essentially, it's just, is the company executing against the investment thesis? So if we stick with the idea of NVIDIA, back when I added it to my own portfolio, at that time... Coming up for about a year ago, actually, the company was making the majority of its money from its gaming segment. And if we think about what NVIDIA do, if it really boils down to it, they design GPUs, graphics cards, and smaller graphics cards go in like a regular PC or in like a handheld device. So I've got a NVIDIA graphics card on my computer right now. And the gaming segment, which was essentially kind of, you know, home PCs and games, but also cryptocurrency mining, that was the dominant sector generating revenues for the company. But it was very clear to me and to many other analysts that wasn't the future of the company. The future of the company was data centers, which are a a bit more complex, but essentially really big graphics cards, really big GPUs in clusters with some very clever technology to kind of hook it all together to do incredibly powerful parallel processing, which is fundamental to making AI work, essentially to run these large language models and generative AI that we're now seeing uh, lots and lots of examples of across really all industries. And it was very clear to me a year ago that that was to be the future. So the green shoots that I was watching for the following nine months or so until I trimmed were, is the company executing against that data center strategy? And um, are we starting to see growth there? And very quickly, data center became the dominant segment for generating revenue. And it's now, you know, a very large part of the company's fortunes. But but there's also another little piece, and I think it's quite interesting for a company like NVIDIA. We talked there about two of the segments. Well, they have two other segments. And one of those is uh, the NVIDIA Drive platform, essentially autonomous driving. So we all think about Tesla, you know, I've got a Tesla on the driveway and Tesla have got their own 
strategy for delivering autonomous driving. But actually, if you're not Tesla and you haven't got these incredible engineers and this vertical integration, well, actually, you're probably, if you're a Mercedes or a Ford or a Hyundai or whoever else, you're probably partnered with NVIDIA to license the NVIDIA Drive platform, which is sensors that go in the car and the software and the really clever stuff in in terms of uh, AI technology to be able to sort of see what's happening in the world and then uh, navigate the car. So everybody else is doing is using NVIDIA, essentially, uh, maybe apart from Waymo as well, Alphabet. Now, that's a tiny part of the thesis for NVIDIA. It's really not material to their numbers today, but that could be enormous. You know, that could even perhaps eclipse data center as a segment one day in the far future when this stuff is commonplace. And so I, I like to find sort of green sheets like that as well. Optionality, does the company have these fun little interesting things that it's pursuing almost as a bit of a kind of side mission, but could become something that's quite material in the future. You mentioned before one of your core holdings, which is CrowdStrike. What do CrowdStrike do? Tell us about that company and where they're listed. <laughs> and mm. One of my favorite companies. And actually, I <laughs> literally just installed CrowdStrike software on my PC about a week ago just to get a better handle on it. But it's not designed for guys like me. It's designed for big enterprises and, and big companies. They're an endpoint protection uh, company, so they're in kind of cybersecurity. And if we think about what's happening in the world, huge increases in hacking, also state-sponsored hackers. You know, you've got governments in different parts of the world with their own kind of hacking teams. And so companies need to protect their data, which is essentially, you know, it's like mission critical. If you can't protect your data, your reputation is in tatters. You know, your company could literally fall apart. So cybersecurity has always been a top two or three priority for CIOs across all industries. Well, I mean, it's essentially number one priority today. I think it was dueling with remote working and, you know, keeping the lights on during COVID. Now the pandemic's behind us. Cybersecurity is pretty much unarguably top priority for every CIO. I've used this phrase with colleagues before. I think there used to be a saying in the maybe the 1980s, uh, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Today, I think you could arguably apply the same uh, logic if you're a CIO to CrowdStrike. It's the Forrester and Gartner leader in endpoint security. So I don't think anyone would ever get fired for picking CrowdStrike for their cybersecurity defense for their organization. And where are they listed? Is, are they a NASDAQ listing? Uh, I believe so. NASDAQ under the ticker CRWD. Mm-hmm. And actually, and funnily enough, that is one of my core stocks. I've got a 6% allocation to that fella. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, another one of your stocks is um, Wise. Tell us about Wise. Yeah. Hey, do, have you, do you use Wise by any chance? I know they're in Australia. I know my colleague Anaban now does. No, yeah, I actually have just signed up because I've got to take um, payments from international payments. So yes, I've become familiar with it and um, they're very, very impressive platform. In fact, I've been talking to other business owners who take overseas payments that have been using OFX, I think, and um, right, I've been saying, right. well, maybe you should try yeah. Wise. I think their fees are a lot better. Anyway, I'm I'm just they're, a newbie uh, in this game. No, not at all. Well, you know, I, I discovered Wise myself about a year and a half ago when I started working for Seven Investing and I needed to receive payments in US dollars. And I thought, well, actually, I need some, I need an international banking capability. And I mean, frankly, just kind of had a bit of a Google around 
And there were only one or two names that popped up as highly recommended. So I got my wise business account. And I, 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 I wanted so, to get one of those as well, one of those cards, because you can travel with it as well and not get those fees. Those it's, outrageous it's fabulous. Well, I travel fees. with this. And I also I travel with my wise personal card as well now. And mm-hmm. that's where I do all my international banking. And let me just let me tell you why I think they're so fantastic. I'll give you a little anecdote. I've just come back from a trip to India and Sri Lanka with my wife who went out there for about a month or so. And, you know, if I think about historically before I had WISE and I banked with HSBC, I used to work for the bank for 25 years. If I were traveling overseas, I'd use my credit card and my HSBC debit card. And when I get home, I, you know, I'm, I'm able to use those cards and pay. It's not no, no friction. It's dead easy. But when I see my statement back home, there are really quite significant fees added on to every transaction and the banks have to break it out. So it's really in your face how much it's costing you to use uh, these cards overseas. It's not, it's not very pretty. So when I traveled to India and Sri Lanka, I was able to, in the Wise app, just online, I created a little pot, like a basically a, an account in Indian rupees and a separate account in Sri Lankan rupees. And then I was able to do a, a transfer from sterling into these local currencies. And I had then had essentially sort of kitty of money to spend. When I did that transfer, I got the spot rate. So if you go to Google and say, you know, how many rupees for one pound, that'll give you a number. You know, if you went to your foreign exchange bureau in the, the high street, or if you went to your bricks and mortar bank, they're going to have the price they sell it to you and the price they buy the currency back. And you have this big spread, which can be quite a few percent, particularly on a, a slightly rarer currency like Sri Lankan rupees. You know, you could be losing five or six percent between the buy and the sell price. Well, wise give you that price you see on Google. You get the mid price, which is incredible. And they charge a transparent fee, which is currently about 0.74%, I think. And their target actually as a company is to get that fee to zero. They're trying to target getting costs of FX down to nothing because they, they're making incredible revenues from lots of add-on ancillary services. With my Wise card now, because the UK is a, a fairly pilot market for the company, they're actually able to allow me not even to sort of earn interest on my balance. I can keep my balance fully invested in the MSCI World Index or in Treasury bonds. And if I go buy a cup of coffee, well, automatically on the platform, you know, that three or four dollars disinvests and the coffee gets bought, but I'm kind of fully invested at all times. So wow. <laughs> I couldn't do that with my HSBC account. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. So they really pride themselves on transparency, cost, speed, and convenience. Oh, and I said, I said an anecdote from Sri Lanka. So uh, when we were there, I had a local vendor I was trying to send a bank transfer to to pay for a safari and this chap wasn't really set up properly and he, he said oh just do a transfer here's my sort of essentially like the local version of my checking account number if i tried to do that with hsbc it would have been absolute torture trying to do that with wise it was dead easy you know i already had a sri lankan bank account myself essentially for the duration of my trip and it took it was a case of 30 seconds just to do a transfer to his bank account effectively you're banking like a local so it's just a really great proposition. I highly endorse it. And I'm, I sounded so enthusiastic there. You know, I'm not paid by the company. Um, yeah, and this is get, no recommendation to buy the stock or anything, but, um, you know, we've both had really a, good experiences with it. It's a great stock. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a mm. great stock. And, you know, funnily enough, it won't be any surprise you hear how enthusiastic I am about the company there. They get, I think, two-thirds of their new customers come through referrals. And indeed, I've referred this company to many of my friends and family. And it's interesting, the idea that they maintain what are called local liquidity pools. Is that the way they bypass foreign exchange that they have, like in Sri Lanka, they'll have money and they'll have some cash as well in India and all around the world? Exactly. You uh, mm. you picked up on where I sort of skipped over how the magic happens. Essentially, <laughs> when Wise does a transfer from, say, Luke wants, he's got pounds and he wants to buy Indian rupees, all Wise essentially do is they make an adjustment in their big ledger in the spreadsheet and they take some money off me over here and they allocate me some money that they already have over there in India and no transfer actually takes place, which is why they can essentially do that transfer instantaneously because they don't have to go through this horribly complicated correspondent banking infrastructure that has uh, kind of grown up over the last 30 or 40 years to allow kind of traditional transfers. This is how normal banks send money. It actually goes through lots and lots of hops and steps, which takes time, incurs fees. Boys don't do any of that. They just have these pots of money all around the world. And if you you know do a transfer, they just put it down in one pot and then they increase you in the other pot and there you go, transfers happened. So let's get back to your portfolio. Cash, what role does cash play in it? Uh, it is critical. It's critical. But it's, I think it's it's somewhat unique to someone in my situation perhaps because I'm now essentially retired, uh, have been for about two years as a result of being an investor for 19 years. So I'm not adding new money to my portfolio. In fact, I'm paying myself from my portfolio. I'm kind of taking a withdrawal every month to pay the bills and pay for my Sri Lanka vacations. Now, if you're in that sort of retirement phase of portfolio management, a typical way to navigate that is you have a whole bunch of income stocks. So, you know, some of your stocks will pay you a dividend and then that's your kind of pocket money, your dividends or what you live on. I have a small number of income stocks, but I haven't really focused on building that allocation in my portfolio my investments are far more growth oriented. So the way I simulate having essentially the ability to pay myself income is I just have a slug of my portfolio. I think it's currently about 18% of my portfolio in cash. And then that 18% would sustain me for several years of outgoings. But the, the main benefit in terms of portfolio management is because I'm not adding new money to my portfolio every month. If I want to buy a new company, you know, I added to my position in something just a few hours ago, it means I don't have to sell something to generate the money to buy the next thing. Because I don't want to make two decisions if I don't have to. I really just want to make, you know, the one decision I want to make. So having a cash allocation essentially reduces the friction in my decision-making allows me to buy without having to figure out what I'll sell at the same time. So that can be quite powerful. And I think when you look over the very long term, I'll look back, say, two years ago, I, I think I was incredibly lucky, more so than good judgment, if I'm really honest. I was retiring in November 2021, and I think my cash allocation was about, give or take, about 10% at the time. So still a substantial amount of money, but I wanted to increase that and build basically more of a cash allocation to give me a bit more of a buffer, but also sell some stuff so that I could build an income portfolio to start getting some dividends every month, every quarter. And so I sold, 
I looked across my portfolio, I applied that valuation filter and identified seven or eight companies. Uh, and you'll see these in my Twitter thread scattered around where I just felt they were at the top end of their valuation. And if we think back to kind of November 2021, really luck because I was retiring. That's what drove, that's, that's what catalyzed that rather big sell I did. Almost within days, the market suddenly turned and really the backside fell out of my portfolio. And I'd gone, I'd taken myself by selling to about 20, 25% cash. Well, as all of my stocks started to almost halve in value in some really extreme cases over the course of 2022, a really humbling time as an investor, my cash allocation was steady. And so actually, essentially, my cash allocation grew as a percentage because everything else was declining. So I found myself sort of midway through 2022 with almost a 30% cash allocation. And so at the point where I started to feel comfortable, maybe we've seen the worst of this, I then slowly started to reinvest that 30%. And I'm about halfway through that journey. I think I'm down to about an 18% cash allocation now. And so I think I was lucky retiring when I did, but essentially, not by judgment, essentially what that's resulted in is me doing what they say you should do, selling high and now buying at better value points. And I said to my colleague, Christoph, on our own podcast, uh, when we recorded just a few days ago, you know, I truly think if I look back in five years time and do another one of these big reviews, some of those investments I've made over the last 12 months are genuinely going to prove to be some of the best investments I've ever made. Just another part of the portfolio that we should explore is the growth part of it. Yeah. So I've got this big sort of chunk in the middle, about 16 companies that I consider to be uh, my growth stocks. So we didn't really talk about those at the start. We talked about the core and we talked about the venture, like the really crazy stuff. Well, all the things in the middle are my growth stocks. And I think, I think I'm about a 30% of my portfolio is in 16 growth stocks. So what's that? About 2% each, give or take. And uh, Wise is an example of one of those. So these are typically companies that I've, I really feel I understand. I've brought up to that 2% level, perhaps in one or two pieces, because I, I have got perhaps more recently into a habit of making that initial buy 1%. And then I've maybe I've bought it twice. It's sort of gone 1% to 2% or it's grown to 2%. They're all typically around that allocation. And my sort of expectation with that category of stocks is, they're all going to do well in general. And, you know, some won't make the cut. Some I might have to trim away, but I'm kind of optimistic, I think, on a, on a risk return basis that I'm going to see like a good market beating return. I'll be looking at, you know, hopefully over the long term for a sort of 20 to 30% compound growth in each of those on average. You know, some will do better, some will do worse, but that's my, my hope for that portion of the portfolio. Do you have a definition of what you describe as a growth stock? Because there's a lot of definitions and everyone's got, um, you know, slightly nuanced views. Is there, um, what's your particular take on what makes a growth stock? How do you know it's a, a fish? Like it looks like a fish or it flaps like a fish. It's, it's not something that I've owned for years and years and years and it's become a core stock. So I've, I've sort of taken those off the table, but it's still a relatively mature company. So typically the majority of my growth stocks are sort of small getting into mid caps. So let's say, I'm just waving my hands with these numbers a little bit, but between 
kind of a $5 billion and a $20 billion valuation, $30 billion valuation. And they're still relatively early in their story. So they have many years of compounding ahead of them. They're typically not mature. They're not paying dividends. They're not generating income. That's the kind of thing that happens generally later in a company's life cycle. So typically they're expensive on a most valuations you might look at. They're, they're expensive on those bases. But I'm looking beyond, with most of these, beyond the, the short term. You know, I, I expect to own all of these companies for 10, 20 years, perhaps never to sell them. And so really when you take a very long view, which by definition is you're looking through multiple cycles of the, of the world sort of retracting, turning against growth and then back into growth. I'm looking for companies that really are early in their journey. They've got incredible potential. Typically, they all have incredible founder teams, a culture of innovation, and you know they've really got something to the story. But also, um, these days, I feel that they're at a reasonable valuation. They're all expensive by typical terms. You know, if you were a a Warren Buffett, you probably wouldn't go near any of these with a barge pole. You'd say, oh, they're, they're kind of crazy. There's so much uh, hype built into them. But my thesis for each of those kind of looks beyond the hype and sees a day where where all of those companies potentially are generating, providing services or products that I feel the world will need more of in the future. And so that's kind of the basis of my uh, approach to investing. So if listeners want to find out more about this Twitter thread, what is your handle? Yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter and now on threads as well. I've been playing with that. Oh, you've, got, you've gone over it as well, yeah. have you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you can find me at both of those at 7LukeHallard, number 7LukeHallard. All lowercase, one word, I believe? Uh, I think they're both case intensive, but yeah. When you reflect back on your portfolio and, and beginning investing, what is one of the, the main things that you would suggest for a new investor to think about as they approach the share market? Um, I suppose the hardest thing is getting started. Um, and I, I started as an investor when I was in my young 30s, 30, 31. And I started actually by finding a good buddy uh, who I've respected his opinion and I kind of twisted his arm to become an investor at the same time as me because, you know, a hobby like that shared is much more fun and exciting, but also it's really beneficial to have another smart person you can kind of kick your ideas around with and sort of test your thinking and you kind of grow together. Um, you know, the sum of the halves is, uh, is more than the whole, whatever that saying is. So if you haven't started, get started and try and find a buddy or find an investing community you can get involved in where you think people are having smart conversations. You know, I wouldn't say a Wall Street bets on Reddit, but I would say perhaps go out and find a, uh, a good quality investing community with some uh, mature voices in the room and then listen and learn. Luke Hallard, thank you very much for joining me today. Always a pleasure, Phil. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.